Good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at building effective disciples, um, looking at those who are closest to Jesus, those that have learnt from him during his ministry. You know, first we looked at the 72 who were sent out on a mission and, and called not to be successful, but instead to be obedient. And last week we looked at the 12, you know, this small group of disciples who would learn together and grow together and minister to one another together. And today we're looking at the three. Three of Jesus' disciples who were closest to him. And you could even say that these three disciples were the greatest. In popular culture at the moment, there's this special description that you give to someone who is great. Like, really great. Like, really, really great. And it's, it is this. It's you call someone a goat. G-O-A-T. It stands for greatest of all time. And you would say that Michael Phelps would be the goat of swimming. He's won 28 Olympic medals when 23 of them were gold. You would say, thinking about basketball, Michael Jordan, MJ. It's got to be him as the goat of basketball. Six-time NBA champion, five-time NBA MVP. The goat of tennis, you can't go past Serena Williams with 21 Grand Slam wins. Huge. And the hotly debated goat of soccer or football, uh, Lionel Messi, six-time Ballon d'Or winner and ten-time La Liga titles and, and four Champions League trophies. He is so confident that he is the goat that he even took a photo of himself with a goat. That is, that is great confidence. When you think of these great sportsmen and women, you think of success and fame, of talent and skill. You think of money and, and vast amounts of wealth. But when we think of Christian history and we think of the goats of the faith, we might think of you know, the philosopher Augustine of Hippo or reformer Martin Luther or, or more recently, maybe even the evangelist Billy Graham. You know, all had incredible impact for the kingdom of God. But what is it that makes a disciple of Jesus great? You know, is it their ability to write and persuade, to teach and preach? Is it by the fruitfulness of their ministry or, you know, how long their name will be remembered for? You know, in the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus uh, is telling us what a great disciple really is. And it turns our idea of great disciples just completely upside down. So if you've got your Bibles there, please open up to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to look at 30, verse 35 to, to 45. But before we get into it, I just want to introduce you to Jesus' inner circle, the three closest disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. First Peter it's a bit confusing because his name was Simon. Uh, but, and Jesus tells him, Peter, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And we can read in the book of Acts that Peter is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He has a pretty prominent role in the building up of the early church. 
And it was this same Peter that denied Jesus three times. It was also this same Peter who wrote the letters, first and second Peter. The other two of Jesus' inner circle were brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Now, James, this can get a bit confusing because there's three people in the name of James in the New Testament. One um, is another disciple as well. He's known as James, the son of Alphaeus. The other is uh, the brother of Jesus, named James. And it's Jesus' brother who's thought to author the book of James. So this James, son of Zebedee, has much less written about him compared to Peter and John. Probably because James was martyred on, uh, martyred pretty early on. And we can read about that in Acts 12. The other brother, John, he is the disciple who authored the Gospel of John. And letters 1, 2, and 3, John, and the book of Revelation. John also refers to himself in his Gospel that he was the disciple who Jesus loved. And he was the only disciple to have witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. He was comforting Mary, the mother of Jesus, when all the other disciples had bailed. And all three were fishermen. And in this, the passage we're going to look at today, Peter doesn't really feature, but James and John, they really put their foot in it. So if you've got your Bibles there, open up to Mark 10, 35 to 45. And we're just going to uh, read the first couple of verses. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, being Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. James and John are asking for positions of greatness. The seat to the right holds the greatest honour, and the seat to the left is next in rank. One commentator suggests that their request to Jesus is actually an attempt to achieve a higher rank than that of Peter. You know, you've got two seats, here's two of us, you don't want to have to choose between brothers, now do you? They assume Jesus is going to be enthroned as a political king. They expect him to lead an uprising, liberating Israel from Rome and, a, and establishing Israel to be a kingdom again like that of the time of David. Now, despite Jesus repeatedly telling the disciples of his upcoming suffering and death, it's kind of understandable that disciples expect this kind of geopolitical kingdom. And so they want an important role in it. So James and John hope to get in first. And Jesus replies, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus rebukes them because they are missing the point of his mission. They were expecting to ride the coattails of the glory of Jesus into positions of a power and authority for themselves. Ultimately for their own share of the glory. But great discipleship isn't glamorous. There's no fame or fortune. There's no glory in it. And it makes me wonder, are our, our choices governed by what will give us seemingly the most glory? 
How often is our discipleship guided by wanting a little more glory for ourselves? And by discipleship, I I mean two things. Let me explain. First is, by the way that we position ourselves to be ultimately a disciple of Jesus, yes, but also as a disciple of those who are further along the journey than us. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We need to be following the examples of others. But have we actually made ourselves available to be discipled? Because there's very little glory in opening up to someone with what we're struggling with. There's no glory in the daily grind of being a Christian. There's no glory in admitting you need help with sin. There's no glory in in making yourself accountable to others. Great discipleship isn't glamorous. And the second way by, by how I mean discipleship is by the way we are investing in making disciples. You know, this isn't a pastor thing. This isn't an old person thing. Making disciples is simply a Christian thing. So who are you discipling? Who are you helping to grow in their love for Jesus? You should be able to think of a few people. If you've got kids, they're on the list. If you're mentoring someone, they're on the list. Who are you discipling? Because there's very little glory in taking someone out for coffee just to see how they're going. There's very little glory in in praying for someone and seeking to encourage someone in their relationship with Jesus. There's no glory in giving that person a call or a message just to check in. There's no glory in investing in a relationship that often doesn't give you anything in return. It doesn't boost your social status or doesn't help your agenda. There's no glory in committing to your connect group, rocking up rain, hail or shine, day in, day out, because you're a committed disciple. Great discipleship isn't glamorous. Being a follower of Jesus who is not engaged in discipleship is like Michael Phelps in his prime not bothering to get in the pool. Or like Michael Jordan retiring from basketball to go play minor league baseball. And that actually happened. Or like putting Lionel Messi on the bench. It doesn't make sense. There's no grandstanding in Christianity. The Tokyo Olympic Games are on right now. And don't switch over. I I personally loved seeing the Oli Roos get a victory over Argentina late last week. You know, Australia sent 472 men and women to compete. And each of them have been working so incredibly hard to be at their very best for the Olympics. You know, they are Olympians. They've done the hard training and preparation. They've been sent out to Tokyo to bring back gold. You know, whether they win gold or not, they are Olympians. I, on the other hand... I've spent the better part of this lockdown on the couch eating almond croissants. The only exercise I've been getting has been the distance from the couch to the fridge. I am so far away from being an Olympian right now. If I was going to be an Olympian, I'd need a lot of things. I'd need to be more skilled. I'd probably need to be stronger. I'd need to be fitter. I'd need to be more disciplined. Maybe then... I could be an Olympian. Sometimes I think we can think about discipleship like if we were to become an Olympian. We might think, I don't really know much 
about the Bible. I'm not really good about talking about Jesus to people. The idea of being on mission in my workplace or in my sporting club, well, you know, at best it, it paralyzes me and at worst it terrifies me. I just don't have close Christian friends to journey with. I, I just don't have the time. If, if I had these things, then I could be a disciple. But when we think like this, I think we have it all wrong. To get to the Olympics, you have to qualify. You have to be good enough to make it. But to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus has qualified you. You can't be good enough in and of yourself. Jesus gave us right standing before God and on our behalf gives us the Holy Spirit. So wake up, church. We're in Tokyo right now and we're competing right now. You've got a race to run today. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. There's no grandstanding. So let's keep going in the passage. Let's pick up the, uh, the passage from verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those who whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Even the other disciples see how superficial their request is. They're not happy. And Jesus tells them what they're actually asking for. He doesn't grant them their request, but tells them what it's really going to cost to drink the cup and to be baptized. See, the cup Jesus is referring to is probably what he's referring to in Gethsemane, the night of Jesus' arrest. He takes the three to Gethsemane to pray. And he, and he prays a prayer that says this, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He's talking about what he's going to suffer. The beating, being stripped of his clothes and mocked and rejected by his closest friends and then finally being nailed to the cross, bearing the full wrath of God on himself. That, that's what he's talking about, the cup. And the baptism of Jesus is, he's talking about his, his execution and resurrection, his, his death and, his, and his, life, his new life. James and John ask for glory in the kingdom of God and Jesus says, you'll get it, but it's through suffering. And it wasn't long until this became real and in Acts 12, read about it, James gets beheaded. The disciples of Jesus share in the sufferings of Jesus. We share in His sufferings. You might be thinking, hold on a minute. Wait, this wasn't on the pamphlet. This suffering was never part of the deal. But I want to show you a couple of verses. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 1 Peter 4.13 
but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And Romans 8.17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Yes, there will be glory in the kingdom of heaven for His disciples and for us. But first, disciples suffer. In a moment, I want to share with you a short clip. And it was the semi-final of the Thailand Cup. And the game was drawn. So it went to penalties to decide the winner. And again, teams were tied on penalties scored. And if this next goal win, uh, scores, they win. If he misses, they lose. Let's play the kip. The ball hits the crossbar and the goalkeeper celebrates. Yet the ball had so much topspin, it bounced back in, winning them the game. The keeper revealed in the glory of the winning the game. The keeper reveled in the glory of winning the game. Just too early. He ended up uh, missing out on what he was supposed to do. He could have easily stopped that ball from going in if he just kept his eyes on it and stayed put. It wasn't the time to bask in the glory of the win. The ball was still in play. There's no glory for an athlete partway through a race or partway through competing an event. Glory comes when the race is finished. And for the Christian, our race is not yet finished. The ball is still in play. There are disciples to be made, and it's going to be challenging. There's going to be persecution. It's going to be hard, but it's who Jesus has called us to be. As we keep reading, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach into the situation. Let's pick up from verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus here contrasts the leadership of the world with that of his disciples and completely rejects the way power and authority is used by the surrounding nations. The Gentiles, they dominate those under them, but not for the disciples. They serve. And not just serve, but to be a a slave. You know what that word slave means in Greek? Yep, it means slave. I bet that wasn't on the pamphlet either. But it means to take up the lowest 
of low places. You can't get any further away from places of glory, places of honor and greatness than to be a slave. And James and John, they were asking for a place of greatness. And it sounded like fame, power, and authority. But Jesus is saying true greatness is lowly. It's humble service. Greatness might even look like weakness or defeat and even death. Jesus models the way in his servanthood. And it's so beautifully illustrated when Jesus washes the disciples' feet takes the role of a slave and serves the disciples by cleaning their dusty, stinky feet. And the greatest act of all is demonstrated by Jesus giving up his own life. Imagine for a moment it's Christmas Day. It's almost lunchtime. Everyone is so ready for a huge feast Everyone's there. The nieces and nephews are running amok. There's wrapping paper everywhere. And as you sit at the table, the smell of roast lamb and rosemary wafts out of the kitchen and it just makes your mouth water. You know, there's always at least one person in every family slaving away in the kitchen. You know, while everyone else is having a great time, there's one person doing all the work. And for my family, usually it's my mum. And as the food is served, it's, it's mum who's, who's still making the gravy. And as she comes to the table, 10 minutes after everyone else, you know, one of the kids has taken the last adult seat. So mum grabs a stool and, and puts it on the corner of the table. And, and with not even enough room to put down her plate, she just eats her lunch on her lap. Selflessly, she serves everyone else first and then takes the worst seat at the table. When really, as the host, she should be the one who is honored. And this is the image that Jesus gives to his disciples of serving. He uses, the word he uses for serve is one you'd use for, for waiting tables, putting everyone above yourself. And aren't mums an incredible example of that? I know mine is. A disciple of Jesus serves. A great disciple does the things nobody else notices, that you get no glory for doing. Willingly takes the lowest place. The greatest disciples of Jesus are not the ones who were famous not the ones who run mega churches or, or write amazing books. You know, the goats of the kingdom of God are, are so humble that you probably wouldn't even notice them. They are ordinary. They are plain, completely unremarkable in every way. Yet because of their desire for God's glory instead of their own, because of their, their perseverance in suffering, and their selfless acts of service, they are the greatest and will hold all the places of honor in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, help us to be your servants, your disciples, Lord. We pray that we would magnify your glory 
We pray that we would not try to take glory for our own, uh, that we would live lives that reflect glory onto you. We pray for perseverance in our suffering. Pray that we would know your comfort and your peace. And we pray that we would be a a church that, that serves one another, that puts one another above ourselves. We pray that we would be a church that uh, that is serious about discipleship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.